Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Good evening, a big night tonight in presidential politics with the Globes coming off in South Carolina and the primary there just days away. We begin, though, with a public health story dominating the headlines, creating the stock market and potentially reshaping the political landscape. We're talking, of course, about the novel coronavirus. And keeping them honest, there are signs that the federal government may not be ready for what could be coming. What's more, the president doesn't seem to be playing straight with the public about it. The uh, coronavirus, which is um, you know, very well under control in our country, we uh, you have very few people with it. The people are getting better. They're all getting better. I think that whole situation will start working out. A lot of talent, a lot of brain power is being put behind it. Two and a half billion dollars we're putting in is a very good chance you're not going to die. Now they have it. They have studied it. They know very much. In fact, we're very close to a vaccine. There's a very good chance you're not going to die. True, but perhaps not the greatest slogan for a public health campaign. As for being close to a vaccine, that is not the case. It can take a year or a year and a half or more to develop one. Nor is there any evidence the outbreak will die out in the warmer months, which is what happened to SARS. But this is a novel coronavirus. No one can say for sure if it will simply die out as the warmer weather, uh, as the weather becomes warmer. Certainly, let's hope it does. A top official at the Centers for Disease Control has put out a very different message from the president, saying it's not a question of if it will spread in the U.S., it's a question of when it will and how bad it will get. Yet as the president flew back from India, at least one top White House advisor was sounding optimistic, and his job title may help explain why. We have contained this. We have contained this. I won't say airtight, but pretty close to airtight. We've done a good job in the United States. Hats off to our public health people. Well, that's White House Chief Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow. He was speaking. As he was speaking, the Dow was tanking for a second straight day. It's down 1,910 points for the week. Now, the president has been quick to take political credit for the market's performance. Critics now accuse him of downplaying a public health threat to keep that record intact. As we said, the federal government's own leading medical authorities see the threat very differently from this president. This is audio from Dr. Nancy Messonnier, director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases. Ultimately, we expect we will see community spread in this country. It's not so much a question of if this will happen anymore, but rather more a question of exactly when this will happen and how many people in this country will have severe illness. Not if, but when, she said, which raises obvious questions such as, are we prepared? Today, however, testifying before a Senate committee, the president's acting secretary of Homeland Security was not even able to answer basic questions like this one from Republican Senator John Kennedy. Right, head of Homeland question. Security, do we have enough respirators or not? For patients? I, I don't understand the question. For everybody, every American who needs one who gets the disease. Uh, again, I would refer you to HHS on that. Mr. Secretary, my you're, budget you're, supports, you're, you're supposed to keep us safe. My budget supports the men and women you're of the, the Department Secretary of Homeland Security. You're the Secretary of Homeland Security. Yes, sir. And you can't tell me if we have enough respirators. For the entire American public? Yes. No, I would say probably not. 
Okay, how short are we? I, I don't have that number offhand, Senator. I will get that for you. Okay, but but I want to be sure I understand. You, somebody. Yes, sir. Is doing modeling. Yes, sir. On how many cases were anticipated? You're yes, sir. Just not aware of that. You're asking me a number of medical questions that I'm asking CDC you questions and HHS because you're Secretary of the Department on. of Homeland Security, and you're supposed to keep us safe. Yes, sir. And you need to know the answers to these questions. Well, Acting Secretary Chad Wolf there also did not know how many cases his department was anticipating, nor how many cases the Department of Health and Human Services, or CDC, were estimating. The acting secretary also echoed the president's claim that a vaccine is near, something that the HHS secretary was later asked about at the very same hearing. The secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, which is charged with, with keeping us safe, just testified about 10 minutes ago, a month and a half. Which is it? Uh, one could not develop a vaccine in a month and a half. That would, that's never happened in human history. Maybe you ought to talk to the Secretary of Homeland Security before he uh, he spreads that too far. So there's that. And that is not encouraging, no doubt about it. There's also the question of whether the money and resources the president was touting will be anywhere near enough. Question two about budget cuts at agencies like CDC, how that will affect the federal response to what clearly now is a global threat. Let's have more now on all of it, starting with CNN's Boris Sanchez at the White House. What is the president saying about all of this? We know what he's saying publicly. Is there any word on what he's saying privately? Yeah, Anderson, the president has been watching news of the coronavirus uh, generate more and more negative headlines. And we're seeing officials in this administration be sort of caught flat footed uh, trying to respond to it. Uh, The president apparently is angry and frustrated about this. Uh, Specifically, he's angry about a decision that was made uh, several weeks ago to allow several Americans who had tested positive for coronavirus to return to the United States after being quarantined in Asia. The president apparently furious that he didn't have input in that decision, even calling for the officials who did uh, to be fired. Uh, We're told by sources close to the president that uh, he didn't name specific names. From what we can tell, no one has actually been fired. Uh, We're told that he was broadly venting about the situation. But it's clear that he's taking this more seriously now. And as he does... He's become angrier and angrier over this disconnect that he has uh, with his style, his way of approaching this and the way that his administration officials actually have carried out policy. Anderson, is there I mean, is there any explanation for all the mixed messaging on this coming from the White House? I mean, the the testimony by the acting Homeland Security director was pretty terrible. Yeah, right. And I think there's two aspects to, uh, to this. First, it's the idea that the president and members of his administration didn't fully appreciate the ramifications uh, of this virus and what it could do specifically to the economy. Uh, You know, the president often touts the strength of the U.S. economy based on how the stock market is doing. For two straight days, we've watched the Dow Jones Industrial Average tank, the president obviously taking note of that. Uh, Secondly, uh, we also know that this White House simply doesn't want to rock the boat. Obviously, anything that they say to sound the alarm about coronavirus could further hurt the economy and Uh, As things have headed in the president's direction early on in this 2020 campaign, they certainly don't want to do anything to alarm people or lead to the belief that he isn't handling this in the best way possible. Anderson. Boris Sanchez. Boris, thanks. Just before airtime, I spoke about all this with Hawaii Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono. Senator Hirono, the president is saying that the coronavirus is very well under control. Eric Kudlow is saying it's very contained in his words. A CDC official says a U.S. outbreak is inevitable Is the administration taking this threat seriously? No. In fact, they are um, expressing 
though they're engaging in wishful thinking, notice the people who are saying everything's okay are the political people. And then you have the, the people who are actually having to deal with the, this virus and what could um, happen. And those would be the, uh, the people who are actually doing the, doing the work. And so today's uh, briefing, although it was in a classified setting, anything that we learned can be discussed. And certainly uh, that is not what uh, we were told. Minority, Minority Leader Schumer today said that four words describe the administration's response to the coronavirus, quote, towering and dangerous incompetence. Would you go that far? I mean, the, the, you know, the, the president says, look, we're putting more than $2 billion uh, towards this. He's also said he thinks maybe by April it may just go down as it gets warmer, which is what happened with SARS. But there's no this is a, a novel coronavirus. We've never yes. seen this kind of before. And it's also very easily transmitted. So there are a lot of things about the coronavirus that we're, uh, we don't know about, and so we need to be prepared. And what we were told today in our briefing is that while the United States is engaged right now in containment of the virus, uh, soon we need to get into a mitigation mode, which means that we should be pushing forward with the creation of a, a vaccine as soon as possible, although no matter how much you fast track it, it'll still take a year, a year and a half. We need to do, develop a, a valid test, which we're still waiting for, to test on whether or not somebody has this virus. And in, in my opinion and that of uh, other Democrats, we should have a czar appointed uh, to pretty much coordinate the administration's response to the, this potential onset of a pandemic virus. It's interesting. I was talking to Dr. Sanjay Gupta earlier uh, today for uh, for another show we, uh, we do online, Full Circle. And one of the things he said is that, uh, you know, while there's focus on getting a, uh, a vaccine for for the coronavirus, which is certainly understandable, uh, there's a vaccine already for the flu virus that only about half of Americans get every year, which is really kind of amazing when you think about it. And, and uh, you know, while obviously the coronavirus is a serious concern and and easily spread, as you said, uh, some 70,000, I think, Americans die every year from yes. the flu. Uh, so people don't even get vaccinated with vaccines that already exist. I think, though, there is a tremendous concern about the coronavirus. And so I, I would say that if there is a vaccine developed for it, that uh, it will be uh, given to the people who need to, to to have that vaccination. Uh, I, there, there's a lot of fear going on regarding the spread of this virus. And so, you know, we were told, and I think the president is basically focused on the impact of this virus in the situation on the stock market and the, the effect that it would have on his reelection chances. That is not where the, the health uh, professionals are coming from, where the health professionals are focusing on what's going to happen to the people of our country and what can we do to make sure that this virus does not spread uh, in a way that we lose control. And so they're, they're focused on what we need to do. And, and as, as I mentioned, as we did for the Ebola crisis, there was a czar appointed so that all of these various agencies that are involved right now in the coronavirus, and we have many of them, you have the uh, Homeland Security, you have Health and Human Services, you have OMB, you have CDC, uh, you have uh, DOD. So there should be somebody in charge. And right now there isn't any such person. We also spent something in the order of $6 billion during the Ebola situation. And, uh, and, and we're only being asked to, uh, to fund about $1.2 of new money 
to contend with what could be uh, a rapidly spreading um, disease and illness. You, you think the president's focus on this really is the, the stock market, the, the effect <laughs> the virus may have on the stock market as opposed to the effect on the lives of Americans? Oh, he said, uh, he said as much. He's, he's very concerned about the stock market because he said the stock market is re- recovering, it's doing fine, and uh, the, this whole thing will be over, you know, everything's under control. I think it's very clear where the president's head is at, and his head is always all about him and uh, what, what he can do to protect himself. And so I think that uh, I'm certainly not going to take the lead from what the president's pronouncements are and re- rhetorical pronouncements. I'm going to listen to the professionals in the CDC and, and others who uh, have experience with these kinds of, of diseases. Senator Mazie Hirone, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Sure. Much more ahead tonight, including a Democratic primary race in South Carolina, which has now turned into an all-out brawl. We'll hear from the party official trying to keep things under control. Later, Roger Stone tries to blow up the verdict against him, but the judge in the case fires back hard against President Trump. That and Morris, we continue. South Carolina primary politics have a history of being hard-hitting. Just look back at John McCain versus George W. Bush in the 2000 campaign. This time, though, the punches are being thrown by Democrats, many of them now being aimed at the frontrunner, Bernie Sanders. The focus is on his past writings and past statements, and some of the attacks are the kind that could leave scars within the party during the general election campaign. So with an eye toward that, as well as more CNN town halls tomorrow night and the voting on Saturday, we just spoke just before airtime with Democratic National Committee Chair Tom Perez. Chairman Pris, I'm wondering what do you make yeah. the, of the turn that, that this race has now taken, the stage that we're at? It, it's, I mean, it was bound to happen sometime, but it's, it, do you worry it's, it's turning into a circular firing squad that's going to hurt Democrats in the long run? Or is this just, this is the stage we're at that is inevitable? Well, I, I look at uh, 2008 uh, when we had Barack Obama, uh, Hillary Clinton, John Edwards, uh, that I remember that debate. It was a very similar time to right now. I think it was in South Carolina. And, and that, was, uh, that was a prize fight. Uh, there, there was a lot of spirited discussion there. And at the end of the day, we came together as a party uh, behind then Senator Obama. And I'm confident we're going to do the same thing here. And, and what's even more compelling to me about right now, Anderson, is that everybody understands that Donald Trump is an existential threat to our democracy. And so it's not about any one candidate. It's about making sure that we come together. And so while you will see differences on the debate stage, we saw differences last week. Um, what unites us far outweighs what our differences are. At some point, if uh, there is to be a serious challenge to Senator Sanders from one of the other Democratic candidates, some, some folks who are currently in the race are going to have to drop out. Is that something that you get involved with, with the campaigns in terms of having I mean, those are tough discussions? Is that just up to the campaigns to, you know, to come to terms with that? Or do you, you know, make awkward calls or, you know, knock on the door and and suggest, <laughs> right. you know, somebody drop out. Well, I, I really, I, I think the uh, the voters are going to be the biggest people that help uh, bring that about. I mean, after this Saturday and after next Tuesday, I, I think it will be undeniable that uh, some campaigns, I don't know who, uh, that's going to be up to the voters. But uh, the candidates will have to take a, a really cold, hard look in the mirror and say, uh, Am I viable for the long haul? I, I want to play just quickly something that uh, Michael Bloomberg's campaign advisor said this morning on CNN's New Day. Bernie has all of this loopy stuff in his background, saying things like, 
you know, uh, women get cancer from having too many orgasms or toddlers should run around naked and touch each other's genitals to Sorry, insulate what? themselves from porn. Why has what? this stuff not been more surfaced? He's written about women's rape fantasies. That hasn't been surfaced. That's the loony side of Bernie. He's referring to essays the senator published in the 60s and 70s. Uh, at least one got some attention, I think, during his first presidential campaign. W- what do you make of the Bloomberg campaign bringing them up? Well, again, every candidate is going to do what they think is going to help them to win. In the end of the day, it's going to be up to the voters to decide which candidate shares my values, which candidate can win, and how do we take it to Donald Trump? Uh, because uh, this election is it's impossible to overstate the importance of this election. And so uh, I'm going to leave it up to candidates to figure out what they think is in their best interest. Uh, you know, I, I recall... Uh, vividly in the past that, you know, we've had some uh, very spirited moments at this point in the cycle. But again, uh, I know that everybody understands because everybody has taken a pledge and and an unequivocal, enthusiastic pledge to support the winner. And that happened uh, without hesitation. And I'm confident that they will do that. I just talked to Rahm Emanuel a few minutes ago. He said Tom Perez is going to need a good war room, a good lawyer and a good parliamentarian at the convention, (laughs) that the nomination fight is going to get really ugly around the convention. Uh, Do you have all those things? Uh, We have a great team and uh, I'm very confident in our team. And, you know, we I I know there's a lot of prognostications, predictions. And again, I would remind everybody. Uh, you need almost four. There's 4,000 delegates almost to the convention. You need 1,991 uh, to win on the first ballot. And we have allocated a grand total of 100 so far. So we're in mile two of the marathon right now. Uh, South Carolina is the first opportunity at great scale for African-Americans, the backbone of our party, uh, to make their voices heard. And that is really, really important as we move through this uh, Democratic primary caucus. We will be prepared for any and every eventuality. Make no mistake about it. Chairman Tom Perez, appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. More in the South Carolina primary just ahead, including a discussion with African-American voters there about whom they see as the strongest candidate, plus talk with former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel about what the three former mayors in the race offer voters. With the South Carolina primary and Super Tuesday contest just days away, there's something you might have missed. Three of the leading Democratic candidates have served as a mayor during their political career. We're talking about Bernie Sanders, Mike Bloomberg, and Pete Buttigieg. Bloomberg and Buttigieg in particular have used their experience as mayors to show how that has prepared them for the White House. Earlier this evening, I spoke with someone who knows both occupations well, Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago and chief of staff under President Obama. He's also the author of the new book, The Nation City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World, released for sale today. You said something to Christian Amanpour recently that, that there's panic in, among Democrats about what's going on. Is that really panic? Is- panic, nervousness. I mean, look, here's you. You got to step back. Is We've had six elections where the Democrats nationally have won. It's the same playbook. It's a it's what I call this metropolitan majority, urban, suburban around issues of health care, education, transportation, environmental protections. And it's worked for President Clinton in both his elections, President Obama's both his elections, the 06 and 2018 midterm. It's a center left strategy and government governing philosophy. The idea that you're going to go absolutely far left, ignore moderate to independent voters as part of a coalition has never been tried in the United States by the Democrats nationally. And you have the presidency, Congress, 
the ability to take back the control of the Senate, governorships. This is a big roll of the dice. And I would say panic captures not just on ideological grounds, more importantly, on political grounds, that the notion that you're putting so much at risk, given, look, think of it this way. Three Democrats in the last hundred years have won re-election. Roosevelt, Clinton, and Obama. Why would you throw something out that you know only three times in a hundred years has worked? Why do you, two of them, they're still around and can have really good insight into how to win national elections. And no need to, to essentially reinvent the wheel or to go to the most extreme. Yeah, I mean, I just, look, it's, forget the philosophical, because at the end of the day, getting people health care coverage, making sure that sending your kids to college and it doesn't financially burden you, we all share the same goal. But you literally are taking a major, major political risk when beating Donald Trump is a singular goal of ours and also maintaining control, getting control of the Senate, winning more governorships. And this is... Donald Trump is telling you what he wants, and we are literally leading into this with our chin. I understand that intellectually as an argument, and yet Bernie Sanders is winning. The fact is, 10 years ago, three or four of these people would have already dropped out. Right. Because they have a singular debate, they get $15 million, they're going to stay around the hoop and wait, maybe lightning will strike. By this point, in 2008, 2004... If you had not finished, gotten a gold or a silver, you're done. I, I, I totally get the argument of why forsake. <laughs> if the, you get the argument, why are we having such confusion? <laughs> well, no, but but uh, what? Who's who? Who fits that argument? I mean, who do you, what do you see? Mean? Who, who, well, look, who, what, who among the candidates? Nobody. I mean, nobody's obviously for a lot of reasons. Nobody's going to drop uh, for their but, own. But personal. does any of them do any of them? They don't have a motivation to drop, and that's a real problem. So the opposition of going one on one on one. Look, he's the front runner. By Super Tuesday, if he keeps going, he's a presumptive nominee. Full stop. At some point, a lot of people are going to have to have a, a come to Jesus meeting with them saying, and that's a big thing right. for a Jewish kid to say, a come to Jesus meeting. They're going to have to have a real serious discussion. It be a Shonda if they um, <laughs> Oh, don't be throwing that around, brother. Okay? <laughs> but if they, they would have to do that, and they would have to have a discussion, is this really what we want to do? But if this is something that gets decided in some, you know, in some uh, conference room at the convention. Or no, we'll do it out here on the, on the CNN. Is that OK with you? <laughs> no, but I mean, the folks who support Bernie Sanders and who have been sweating and in the trenches and <laughs> going out there. I mean, that's not going to you no, think no, they're going to go out and vote look, then for the Democrats. No, look, I mean, you, you know, Yogi Beer had a great quote. When you get to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> uh, and so uh, there's a challenge here. You know, in, in 20, 2018, the Democrats made the most gains in a midterm election since Watergate. That's a big number. Not one member who took a red district and made it blue has endorsed Bernie Sanders. Hmm. Um, in the book, you say being a mayor these days is the most important job in politics. Mayors and cities all over the world are stepping in where their national governments have stepped back or even completely turned their backs and walked away. The poison in our national governments has made our politics sick. Mayors are working every day to bring it all back to health. What is it you think, um, I mean, why mayors are running the world? Why is it you think? Well, I think there's a, a couple factors, both economic, social, cultural. Uh, the driving force is Washington has abandoned the responsibilities, but the, re, but the things that you need haven't gone away. Right. If anything, they've, they've, they've only increased. increased. Uh, we have had this period of time where local government ascending and national descending. Uh, but what's different in this kind of t turn is, one, all the things that government touches that you feel confident about, where you live, how you get to work, the transportation, the schools, where you send your children, the parks, the libraries, all those, that's local government services. And added on to that has now come 
Who's leading in income inequality, both education and minimum wage? Local government. Who's leading on climate change and dealing with greenhouse gases the most? Cities. Who's leading on immigration, integrating uh, new citizens into their city? I mean, in Chicago, we have 147 languages spoken in our public schools. All one aspiration for your children's dreams, but a lot of different races and cultures and building a community with all that diversity. So to me, cities and mayors today not only deal with the fundamentals of what you want from public uh, government, but also taking on new responsibilities. Uh, the nation city, the why mayors are now running the world. Thanks, Anderson. Thank you. Saturday's contest in South Carolina rests heavily on the ability of candidates, obviously, to attract African-American voters who make up about 60 percent of Democratic primary uh, electorate. The latest poll of likely African-American voters there comes from NBC News and Marist College. It finds Biden winning their vote 35 percent. Behind him is Bernie Sanders at 20 percent and Tom Steyer at 19 percent. No other candidate gets double digits. For a better understanding of the contours of this race, our Randy Kay went to North, uh, North Charleston, spoke with a group of African-American women about the state of the race and which candidates they believe best represent their interests. I really feel like Biden is the best candidate, and I'd like to convince you that you he got can, a hard job ahead of you. That he can move this country forward. Really? He has the ability to go against Trump. At this North Charleston, South Carolina hair salon, Roxanne Johnson is trying to convince fellow clients to vote for Joe Biden in the upcoming primary. I like his experience, how he knows what's going on in Washington, D.C. He's familiar with policies. Denise Cromwell was a Biden supporter, but now she's undecided. She says Biden disappointed her with a canned response to an emotional story she shared about her uncle, a veteran, taking his life. To me, it was just a political move, a political response um, to hear and say what needs to be heard and said publicly. She's also concerned about Biden's health and stamina, though she's still considering voting for Bernie Sanders. She also likes Pete Buttigieg, but worries about his electability. I just don't think America is ready for a president that's married to a man. Especially here in the Bible Belt, she says, where voters may like Buttigieg's policy, but because of their religious beliefs, won't vote for a gay candidate. Still, Elisa Locke is supporting Buttigieg. Then he has a really awesome plan for moving the black agenda. You know, the Frederick Douglass plan, which he has a lot of great points that we really need to be watching. So instead of we watching Bernie Sanders with the free, free, free. She likes Buttigieg's honesty and his Medicare for all who want it plan. If I like my health care plan, I want to keep it. All of the women are concerned about how Sanders would pay for Medicare for all, free college and his other promises. I just don't see how he's going to do it. I need to have some hard facts. Show me the numbers. Back in the 2016 South Carolina primary, Sanders won just 14 percent of the African-American vote. Most in our group are still turned off. You have to have more of a, uh, a way to deal with people without being so gruff. I think he's kind of rough around the edges there. Blondell Kidd is supporting Biden. He worked with Obama for several years, and I, I certainly trusted that administration. As for Mike Bloomberg, none of these women have even considered voting for him. I just don't feel like he knows what it's like for us everyday Americans and um, what we're going through out here in the real world. What do you make of Bloomberg's apology for the stop and frisk um, policy? I don't know that it's genuine. Meanwhile, as the primary ticks closer, those undecided are looking to the heavens for help. So how are you going to make up your mind? 
You only well, have a few days left. I'm praying. I believe in powerful prayer. Randy Kay, CNN, North Charleston, South Carolina. Well, just ahead, we have breaking news. Roger Stone's attempt to get a new trial. What the judge is saying about Stone's friend, the president, attacking her and the jury forewoman. Symptoms of overactive bladder, or OAB, may be bothersome. As many as 46 million Americans, 40 years of age or older, have reported symptoms of OAB. I got to the point where I was constantly having to plan my outings around being able to go to the bathroom. Felt like my bladder was calling the shots. Many people like her decided enough was enough. It was time to talk to a doctor. We spoke to a few of them to hear their stories in their own words. Listen in at oabmed.com and hear how they discovered Mirbetric Mirabegron. Mirbetric is a prescription medicine for adults used to treat OAB symptoms of urgency, frequency, and leakage. Do not take if you have a known allergic reaction to Mirbetric or its ingredients. Mirbetric may increase blood pressure. Tell your doctor right away if you have trouble emptying your bladder or have a weak urine stream. Mirbetric may cause serious allergic reactions like swelling of the face, lips, throat, or tongue, or trouble breathing. If experienced, stop taking and tell your doctor right away. Mirbetric may interact with other medicines. Tell your doctor if you are taking thioridazine, melaril, and melaril S, flecainide, tambacore, propafenone, rhythmol, digoxin, linoxin, or sulafenacin succinate vesicare. Tell your doctor if you have liver or kidney problems. Common side effects include increased blood pressure, common cold or flu symptoms, sinus irritation, dry mouth, urinary tract infection, bladder inflammation, back or joint pain, constipation, dizziness, and headache. See our ad in Reader's Digest magazine or call 1-855-697-2387. Hear real stories about how Mirbetric can help OAB symptoms at oabmed.com and ask your doctor if it could help you. That's oabmed.com. Breaking news now on the Roger Stone case. Testimony today from the jury forewoman refuting Stone's allegation of jury misconduct. Most remarkable, though, were the comments by Judge Amy Berman Jackson. Quoting from her, the president of the United States used his Twitter platform to disseminate a particular point of view about a juror. Any attempt to invade the privacy of the jurors or to harass or intimidate them is completely antithetical to our system of justice. They deserve to have their privacy protected. That's according to Politico. Now, during the proceedings, the president again attacked the forewoman. Quote, there has rarely been a juror so tainted as the forewoman in the Roger Stone case. Look at her background. She never revealed her hatred of Trump and Stone. She was totally biased, as is the judge. Roger wasn't even working on my campaign. Miscarriage of justice. Sad to watch. Well, keep it honest, Stone was on the campaign in 2015. Joining me now, former federal prosecutor and CNN chief legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin, former Nixon White House counsel and CNN contributor John Dean. Jeff, I mean, have you seen a federal judge ever rebuke a sitting president like this before? I never have, but I've never seen one deserve one, deserve it as much as Donald Trump did. You know, I think it's important to draw a distinction here. Um, it, it's appalling for a president to insult uh, a juror. You know, jurors are not public figures. Jurors are not people who invite themselves, uh, who invite scrutiny. And um, judges quite properly try to protect them, as, as Judge Jackson is doing now. On the other hand, I do think it's entirely permissible for judges to, for presidents to, to criticize judges. You know, there's this mythology that judges are somehow uh, should be immune from criticism. Uh, I don't have a problem with the president criticizing Judge Jackson. I don't have him uh, a problem with him criticizing um, Judge Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor and Ginsburg as he did. I think the criticisms themselves are absurd and he's wrong on the merits. But this idea that judges who have life tenure should be off limits is, I think, wrong. 
John, I mean, is Judge Berman right? Is, is what President Trump and, and others in the conservative media are doing part of a, a campaign of imita- intimidation, harassment of jurors? It certainly appears that way, Anderson. Uh, this isn't just a one-off with him. It's been consistent and persistent. Uh, he's been doing it, obviously, ever since he's become a prominent public candidate uh, and then as president. So Jeff is right. There's no real reason a judge can't be criticized by a president if it's a legitimate criticism. And judges are seldom uh, inclined to attack back. There has been a recent bevy, however, of federal judges from the chief justice on down going after Trump for his improper criticism of of judicial proceedings or, for example, in this instance, going after a juror is totally out of bounds. You know, Jeff, I mean, uh, this comes on the heels, of course, of Attorney General Barr, you know, warning President Trump to stop tweeting about cases the Justice Department is handling, saying he's making, you know, Barr's job impossible. And the president is clearly not listening. What is I mean, do you think Barr is going to actually do anything then if his job if he can't do his job, which is what he was saying, it doesn't seem like he's taking any steps toward not doing his job. No, I, I think William Barr is a total Bush toady, a total Trump toady, and he is going to keep doing his job, which is doing the president's agenda, but pretending that he's outraged, outraged by the president's behavior. I don't think um, there is any chance that uh, the Barr will, will leave. I think that was a show. Um, his his supposed outrage at the president's behavior. And look, look at what he's doing. He's continuing to interfere in individual cases, including the very case that Barr was supposedly so outraged about. I just think uh, Barr is putting on a, was putting on a show and we're seeing that he wasn't serious about it. I mean, John, it is kind of remarkable if you just step back and think that the president of the United States is reaching down and putting his finger, pointing his finger at an individual juror who, you know, you can argue she didn't disclose, you know, whatever she was supposed to, to disclose or uh, that, that, you know, she, but to Jeff's point, she's not a public person. She's not getting paid to be on that jury. It, it certainly would seem to kind of make any juror concerned about serving on any jury on anything related to President Trump if you're afraid the president of the United States is going to, you know, shine his spotlight on you. Well, he's certainly doing it with no facts. Uh, he is purely speculating. It's purely what has been rumored in the conservative media. Uh, there is no basis that is known. That was what the hearing was about today. Uh, it was a hearing where the judge wisely uh, only had an audio feed, so even the media was not in there to, to cover the event. Uh, so jurors' names were not disclosed. And she looked at it. And, and we'll get the results of what that uh, look and see if there's anything improper. Uh, it's very rare you have a judge go into a jury's deliberation like was done today. And that's largely been provoked not just by uh by Trump, by excuse me, by Stone alone filing a motion. He's got the president who's got his back, who's trying to open this thing up and find some excuse to pardon this guy when there is no basis to do so. Yeah. And, and, you know, the whole system is dependent on jurors, ordinary citizens being willing to yeah. participate. And why would they participate if the president of the United States is going to attack them? It's just yeah. awful. John Dean, Jeff Tubin, thank you very much. One of President Trump's staunchest supporters thank has you. what 
Many people will call it an unusual idea for the Office of Director of National Intelligence. What he has in mind when we continue. Busy night. Let's check in with Chris, see what he's working on for Cuomo Primetime. Chris? How you doing, my uh, friend? I got to admit, I've been shy on coronavirus. I've been shy on reporting on it because you know how we don't like to spread panic. So many of these things become overhyped. But it seems like in the last couple of days, I don't know if it's the politics or the president uh, messing with what's fact versus fugazi, but it seems to have reached a new level of concern. So tonight we have the experts on to look at the medical aspect. OK, uh, we have experts on to look at the macroeconomic expat, uh, ex, um, you know, context of this. And then lastly, it will be, what is the politics of this? How is it playing in? How is the president playing his general game of deception, making this more frightening? Yeah, uh, it certainly is. Chris, appreciate it. Thanks. We'll see you just in about uh, nine minutes from now. One of President Trump's staunchest allies in Capitol Hill says there's no need for the position of director of national intelligence, position created right after 9-11. Just ahead, I'll ask the man who once held that job what he thinks about eliminating the position. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham says he'd like to see the director of national intelligence job, quote, go away. Graham, who, of course, is one of President Trump's staunchest loyalists now, told reporters today he believes the position is redundant. It's worth remembering that the job was created in the aftermath of the attacks from 9-11 to try to coordinate all the intelligence agencies under a single umbrella so that they do share information. There's not redundancy to avoid, among other things, a single agency failing to communicate what it knows to a different agency. We get some perspective now from the man who once held the job of Director of National Intelligence, retired Lieutenant General James Clapper, CNN National Security Analyst, who's also the author of Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Director Clapper, you know better than anyone that the, the DNI post was created after September 11th, after the attacks. What do you make of Senator Graham saying that the job is redundant and should go away? Well, not surprisingly, I completely disagree uh, with Senator Graham, and I, I never heard him say that during the time I served as DNI. Apart from the 9-11 Commission, there was also a commission on, uh, that was con- that convened to uh, investigate the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq fiasco, and both of these commissions recommended strongly that there needed to be central leadership direction over the entirety of the U.S. intelligence community. And I can tell you from my time, both as an agency director twice and then serving in the position for six, almost six and a half years, that coordination, integration, collaboration across the intelligence community between and among the components of the intelligence community is not a natural act. There needs to be a full-time champion and advocate for integration and collaboration across the community. It's not very sexy, but it is crucial. What's interesting, too, about this idea is that it doesn't really seem that it stems from any, um, you know, rethinking of intelligence or, you know, any need that's arisen. It seems, if anything, it's about just culling the you know, what I guess the president believes is a deep state. I agree, Anderson. I think to some extent, the, the, uh, the, the position of DNI and the staff, the office of DNI, which supports the DNI personally, I think has become something of a hood ornament for this deep state fiction. And uh, I think one of the useful purposes that the DNI serves, uh, particularly in the Dan Coates uh, era, was to provide top cover for the intelligence components so they can go about their jobs day in and day out. 
Just lastly, CNN is reporting that the president is once again considering Texas Republican Congressman John Ratcliffe, who's obviously a very vocal and staunch ally of the president, to be the next DNI. It's now being filled by an acting uh, uh, director, uh, Richard Grinnell. Uh, It didn't work out for Ratcliffe the first time. The president wanted him last year. There was concern in the Senate about his qualifications. I don't know that there would be anything different this time around, but it if that's who the president wants, it certainly is a sign of just wanting somebody who is slavishly loyal to him. Well, I think so. I mean, that's certainly the case with uh, Ambassador Grinnell. This is a, a, a partisan, a, a staunch supporter uh, of, of the president. And I've always said, uh, and I guess I'm biased, but I believe that p- the incumbent in that position should be an intelligent professional or a national security professional and and preferably somebody that's had some experience running large organizations. I found it to be uh, the toughest uh, job I ever took on in my 50 years in intelligence. And I actually knew knew something about intelligence and, and to learn the ABCs of intelligence on the job, I think is uh, really, why, really why tough. was it? How was it the toughest job? Because I mean, you had a, a lot of extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult jobs in intelligence and, and national. Well, security. it's just it's just the demands that uh, are made on you. Uh, for one, for me, it was uh, time demands. You know, sticking up, staying abreast of um, uh, intelligence developments all over the world, and then at the same time managing this large, complex, uh, globally dispersed. Uh, enterprise of over 200,000 people with a $60 billion budget. Mm. This is not a trivial undertaking, and it's not something that can be done on a part-time basis, uh, like, uh, uh, you know, part-time help at the post office at Christmas time. It can't be done that way. Mm. Director Clapper, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Anderson. Well, that's it for us. The news continues, though. I'll hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime. Chris?